If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, you'll hear an interview with the historian and broadcaster Emma Dabbery on her book Don't Touch My Hair. Emma spoke to our World Histories editor, Matt Elton, about what Afro hair can tell us about colonial history. How would you describe your new book? Ostensibly, it's about black hair, um, about Afro-textured hair, um, the history, politics and significance of hair. But really, it's about a lot more than that. One of my um, friends who was interviewing me described it as a um, as kind of a Trojan horse, um, something that presents itself as one thing, but kind of smuggles in a lot of other ideas. Mm. And I think that's what interests me so much about it, is that it mixes, sometimes on the same page, history, cultural theory, sociology, memoir, all this stuff all bound together. What was the genesis for you in writing it? What what, what led you to write this particular book? So um, I'd written quite a lot about hair um, before, but only really... Um, things of essay length. Um, and I was thinking about um, what topics I had, because like in my work, I cover quite a broad range of, of, of things. There's quite a broad range of things that I've kind of researched. Um, and I was trying to think about a way that I could write about something like seemingly like very specific, but which would allow me to kind of draw on that broad range of research interests and hair seemed like 
quite a useful tool to do that. To start with then, talking about hair, I suppose, as an artefact, something that really interests me in the book is you talk about how um, societies in Africa can quite often have complex non-verbal languages. Mm -hmm. In what cases can we see hair in this this capacity? Yeah, so... um... Because of the texture of Afro hair, um, it's really versatile and it lends itself to being able to be shaped and molded in like a huge multiplicity of ways. So because people had this material that was like a part of their lives and their reality, um, I guess cultures develop to suit the norms of the people in question. So because the hair can do so much, um, a kind of strong and lively hair culture emerged. Um, a lot of the cultures that I look at are um, cultures that would be maybe traditionally described as as oral. Um, so the emphasis was on, um, often on information was disseminated via oral genres. But there's Often the assumption, uh, sorry, there's often the, I invented a word, <laughs> there's often the <laughs> assumption um, that when you speak of orality, that it's only talking about the verbal. Um, but in most oral cultures, there will be, um, yeah, like a plethora of other languages. So in the book I mentioned, like bata, the type of drumming that mimics the tonality of Yoruba, but also... Um, uh, la- the v- visual languages, strong visual languages. So hair would be would be part of that. Mm. And is it is it true that in Yoruba, for instance, there is folklore that has emerged that specifically references hair and hair styling? Is is that right? Um, yeah. So I looked at um, in Yoruba, there's um, a genre called oriki, and there's um, lot that, that there's different styles that, that there's different types of oriki. Um, but oriki are essentially, I guess, it's translated into like praise poems. So there's, um, it's not always praise, but um, like when each person is born, traditionally they'll have their own ariki, which is essentially like a long name or song that reflects, I guess, the conditions of their birth, um, stuff about their family, their parents' aspirations for them, et cetera, et cetera. I looked at um, some of the ariki of the, of some of the Arisha and the Arisha are, Yoruba deities that are intermediaries between like the supreme being and humans. And one of the very well-known ones, particularly, well, she's a very powerful Orisha and she traveled to the diaspora. So it's also kind of known in the in the new world is Oshun, who's associated with the um, Oshun River. And I looked at some of Oshun's Arikis and they talk about her as being the kind of primary hairdresser in Yoruba culture. And because she's such an important person um, or such an important figure, the idea is that like a lot of the kind of like creativity and innovation that comes from hairstyling is kind of like associated with her. And she's also associated with like beauty and um, yeah, kind of like beauty. So it makes sense that she would be associated with hairdressing as well. Hmm. One of the big ideas that you explore in your book is the way in which European settlers, when they first came to Africa, um, were quite admiring of the cultures they found in a way that was very different from later invaders and later settlers. Um, Can you talk me through that history a bit, I suppose? Yeah, of course. So you see accounts um, in the 1600s and the 1700s, even up until the 1800s at times, where um, certainly in the older ones, um, some of the the Portuguese, I think it is, (laughs) early on, and then Dutch, um, 
commentators, observers are staggered by the size and organization of some of the cities that they're that they're seeing. Um, and yeah, they're 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 really impressed. Even um later on when they get into the interior of Nigeria, the British get into the interior of Ni- interior of Nigeria in the mid to later 1800s. Um, they've been on the coast for centuries, but they haven't like gotten kind of beyond the coast. Um, there's a passage, I think the guy's called Clapperton. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but he's talking about how easy the journey was in terms of um, how kind of orderly and um, well-functioning the place is. So he's able to kind of get to where he's going. Um, he's able to hire, and this is actually the introduction of wage labor, which is quite interesting, but he's able to hire um, guides and he's just talking about like the kind of the organization and like and, and the lack of crime and it, it really struck me um how they're traveling through parts of the continent often that today are seen as like very lawless and dangerous but in this period which is supposedly even more underdeveloped and um, things are actually functioning a lot better than they are today often mm. and they often explicitly mention different sorts of of hairstyle and ways of doing hair on these journeys i think don't they yeah, um, one of the, um, a, a lot of the early, um, the early observers are, one of the things that they're struck by is the kind of, is, well, is the ornate hairstyling culture and the diversity of hairstyles and the kind of creativity that they see in hairstyles because they've not seen anything like that before. So there are, are quite a lot of um, accounts of hair. So in, in these societies, in these societies in this period and even later, um, in what ways would time be regarded differently, particularly with regard to to hairstyling? Yeah, so um, I've dedicated a chapter of the book to talking about time. Um, it's called Ain't Got the Time, and it's um, the the idea came from where the premise of it was this um, kind of pretty strongly held. Um, concept that black hair in its natural state is too time consuming. Um, so people straighten their hair because that makes it more, um, that makes it more quote unquote manageable and you don't have to, um, it's not as burdensome. Um, that really, that, that whole kind of construction and attitude towards the hair was really of interest to me because I was just like, no, it surely can't be that this hair is deviant. It must grow the way it grows for a particular reason. But it's as it's as though the society that we live in now, um, which is obviously um, kind of capitalism is the the underpinning logic of it. Um, under capitalism, time has been repurposed um, to be about the maximization of, of profit. Um, so anything that isn't seen as um, productive in that way um, is is a burden or is time consuming. Um, so I started looking at how um, different African groups had organized time before the imposition of wage labor and capitalism and colonialism. And um, yeah, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, in that context, um, where man, I think there's a quote from John Beattie where he talks, he, he says, um, man is not a slave of time, but he makes as much time as he wants. Um, this idea that whatever people kind of prioritize, and one of the things that they prioritized was their hairstyling, um, people have time to do that. It's only um, within a, a, a different system, which has been created with kind of different standards and norms that the hair is reimagined as burdensome. Um, what were some of the reasons why later visitors to Africa, I say visitors, um, <laughs> came to regard hair as less positive, less attractive? 
in their eyes. Yeah. So when um, there's a shift, um, when slavery and later colonialism become the primary reasons that Europeans are are in the continent, um, the more complementary descriptions, the more positive descriptions are quite drastically replaced by far more negative ones. There's this idea that Africans are incredibly idle, again, going back to time, that they're not using their time productively, um, i.e. for the kind of maximization of profit. So um, part of the justification of um, slavery and these kind of op- oppressive regimes and systems of extraction is that these people aren't fully, they even, they're not people, they're not fully human. Um, and one of, there are many ways in which this idea was advanced, but one of them was they don't even have hair. So European people have hair, but African people have wool. And that's more akin in, in this in, in this idea. They have wool that's more akin to um, kind of livestock and animals. So therefore, there's a justification for kind of enslavement and for colonialism because it's a civilizing mission and it's actually bringing the light of civilization to the dark continent. This this view was incredibly toxic, not just for European people, but for the people who suffered through this, wasn't it? In, in what ways does this legacy still live on in the ways in which people regard their own hair even today? Yeah, so because this was such a... Um, because these narratives were so powerful and because the power dynamic was so balanced in favor of white European norms. Um, And you see when there's the kind of extraction of all of these people um, from Africa taken to um, the, taken to the Americas primarily, but other parts of the world as well. Um, There is, um, yeah, very much this idea of Afro-textured hair as inadequate, as inferior, as lesser than, as even kind of associated with this kind of non-humanity. Um, so the, these ideas are internalized and um, the hair is seen as like so other and so deviant and so problematic that um, the kind of that process of assimila- assimilation um, develops and you see the birth of hair straightening and this attempt to make the hair resemble European hair. What are some of the techniques that people, that you even may have used to help achieve this aim? The most um, permanent one is called relaxer. And that is um, a process of chemical straightening of the hair that was first invented um, just over 100 years ago in the in, in the US. Um, and actually, when um, kind of like recently emancipated um, African-Americans, the first kind of like hair capitalists um or the first kind of self-made black um millionaires were often um women who were involved in um the production and marketing and selling of um of of hair relaxer um but yeah so it's a, a chemical process which deforms the elliptical shape of the hair and breaks it and makes it straight um so yeah you can achieve um kind of a facsimile of european hair um but I mean, it's it's very, um, what's the word? I mean, it works. It completely transforms the way that your hair looks. But there are, um, yeah, kind of associated, well, there's lots of associated costs, but there are like health costs 
um, there's the kind of an association of the chemicals that are used with um, endocrine disruption and cancers and fertility issues and fibroids and lots of things like that. Also, um, when I, I relaxed my hair for probably about 15 years, maybe slightly less, and um, I would always have like burns because you also get chemical burns. So I'd always have burns on my scalp, but um, I didn't really mind them, even though they were obviously painful. Um, and yeah, well, they were painful. But um, in my mind, I'd be like, oh, I know my this this is evidence that like my hair has gotten like even straighter. So in a way, I didn't I didn't. I wasn't that bothered by them. So, so the, so the pressure that you felt mm. to look a particular way was so strong that you were mm. happy to put up with actually burning your skin in order to achieve this look. Yeah, chemical burns. Um, yeah, and I, I mean it's staggering to think about now and the level of of cognitive dissonance. But the way I saw it was as though I just had like a chronic malaise, and it was just something that required treatment. And this was the treatment. That's how I imagined it. Do you think that white hair is held up as a paragon then of what a beauty ideal is across society? So I think the the beauty standard comes from the West, but the most idealized kind of iteration of that hair is actually probably Asian people's hair because most of the week, because, um, it, I mean, it, it's straight, but it's actually, European hair can actually be quite, like, can be quite thin, um, but... Um, Asian hair can be is straight but is like thicker and fuller so usually when weaves are made which is the hair that people attach to their 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 head in this process of of, of transformation um it's more likely to be Asian hair than than European hair but the beauty standard is definitely one that comes from kind of a western beauty standard does this um external and then internalized sort of dislike of certain types of hair extend to men as well do you think men also suffer this pressure yeah like absolutely and I have a chapter of the book where I focus more on men's hair um and I've spoken to men actually who told me that they've like texturized their hair which is kind of a type of relaxer it's not fully as rather than making the hair bone straight it gives it like a loose curl because there's also like a hierarchy of like what type of curly hair you have I'll often have white people say to me, oh, yeah, I've got curly hair. Um, I I kind of understand where you're coming from. And I'm like, I get it. Like curly hair is definitely a thing, but it's actually like not stigmatized in the same way that like Afro textured hair is. Um, and then there's like a hierarchy of types of hair where whereby like the most Afro textured hair is like the most kind of reviled. And then there's mixed pe- pe- people who will have mixed ancestry somewhere down the line who have a looser curl that is like different to bone straight hair but is definitely perceived as um maybe the beauty standard of black hair and is more comparable to the type of curly hair that some some white people have even though i mixed my hair very much favored the um african side of my heritage so i don't have those loose curls but yeah so men who would texturize their hair to achieve that kind of looser more loosely curled look or I, recently a guy told me he actually like straightened his hair and he said it was because in school um, he was just sick of being like petted. Um, he just felt like he was like like an animal basically and he didn't want that to happen. So he had a period of straightening his hair. Um, so these are definitely um, issues that affect men as well. But I think maybe we associate it more with women um, because for women, there's there's been until recently more of a culture of long hair being very um, kind of uh, entwined with ideas about femininity and womanhood. Can we trace all of this back to the 
sort of experience of slavery? And are there other historical uh, things that caused this situation? Um, there's no stigma associated with Afro-textured hair um, in the continent before you have this kind of dehumanization of black people. Um, so this is very much something that has its origins in that um, kind of power relationship that um, emerges from, from, from European expansion and then slavery and colonialism, yeah. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Throughout the 80s and 90s and into the noughties, um, straight hair remained the default. It was only with the kind of birth of what is called the natural hair movement that you start to see people rejecting those relaxers and going back to not straightening their hair. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. I wanted to talk a bit about um, black power and the Afro hairstyle. Um, could you talk through what the Afro hairstyle is and the extent to which it is truly African? Yeah, sure. Um, so the quite, I guess, iconic looking Afro is, um, I guess, what a lot of people would think of when they think of nat natural, um, af natural Afro textured hair. Um, um, so it's leaving the hair to just grow as it 
does naturally from the head, kind of like un- unmanipulated. Um, and black people's or Afro textured hair grows up and out rather than down. Um, which some people have told me they've been like shocked by reading that in the book, which is like, I kind of, I mean, I make the point of saying it, but I assume that like everyone kind of knows it, but people have been like, oh my God, that blew my mind. It's like, wow. Okay. So yeah, there's the assumption that everybody's hair grows like in the same direction. And I guess people often ask me, oh, how long is your hair? And they're kind of like this. And I'm like, oh, that's not really a meaning, meaningful reference. Um, oh, not great for a podcast. Sorry, the, 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 the assumption that it goes down and they kind of make a, a motion to their shoulders. Um, but yeah, so the Afro is, um, as I write in the book, women in like Yoruba culture wouldn't have ever really left their hair out in that way. Hair was always like braided or twisted. Um, and that's also because of the texture of Afro hair. Um, if it's out for too long, it is prone to dryness because of the shape of it and it's also like prone to tangling and breaking so moisturizing it and twisting it um is and or braid moisturizing and braiding it is kind of more typically how hair was groomed um because afro textured hair i guess because of because of because the afro i guess because of the name and because it's the way our hair grows naturally there's the association that this is or there's the assumption that this is like the most kind of like african style of 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 hairdress but in actual fact it's more of a um diaspora uh response to racism um it's a retaliation against that stigma associated with hair it's like oh you're saying my hair is kind of ugly and lesser than so I'm going to like showcase it in its kind of like full um resplendency and glory um so it's wearing it out but that imperative wasn't really there in like pre-colonial West Africa so people didn't have to make that statement um and more typically yeah their hair their hair would be their hair would be braided hair wouldn't really be left out in an afro as it were um also in Africa in a lot of um in some of the the aesthetics that I talk about in the book, we're looking at the Ashanti people, looking at the Yoruba people, artifice was actually um, an aesthetic norm. So to just leave your hair wasn't really um, the beauty standard there. It was more, what was considered beautiful was more of like the intervention in the hair. So the um, the skill of the braided hairstyle or the, the, the skill of what was created with your hair was what rendered it kind of aesthetically pleasing. So the Afro, Kobina Mercer makes the argument that the Afro can be linked back to the kind of romanticism of um, European romantic notions of romanticism and the idea that to leave something in its natural state is um, kind of beautiful and something to aspire to. And he kind of links that, the Afro, to the kind of hippie movement and how white people were growing their hair long and it was uncombed and this was seen as countercultural and revolutionary. So I think that argument that the Afro can be kind of located within the norms of European romanticism is quite interesting as well and unexpected. Yes, and we'll go back to that. To go back to the braiding and the twisting just very briefly, um, something that's interesting in the book is the idea that this was an activity around which society could form and uh, interact and uh, you could build community through this action. Is, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, rather than being seen as like a time-consuming burden, um, the hours spent in grooming and in doing one another's hair were seen as yeah important important social time where information was exchanged, um, 
also just kind of like strengthening the bonds of society, it is actually uh, very intimate and there's a lot of like physical proximity. So it's just having that intimacy with a child or with a parent or with somebody that you're close to and having those hours spent together um, were, are, are times of, yeah, kind of important social bonding. Mm. And to go back to the Afro, in, in popular, very broad culture that's associated with a specific point in time, which I suppose is the 70s, mm-hmm. what led to it diminishing as a cultural symbol? Yeah, so um, the the Afro was, um, I guess, popularised um, by Black Power. And initially, and the, the, the Black Panthers and that kind of very revolutionary, anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist, um, revolutionary socialist um, moment. But the hairstyle was increasingly commodified um, and certainly wasn't extended far beyond kind of activists and proponents of Black Power. Um, And with its commodification, I guess a lot of the political intent behind it diminished and maybe the beauty standard had never really shifted because by the 80s um, and the end of black power, you see the reemergence of straight hair again as the default kind of normal quote unquote thing that black women and actually in the 80s men as well would do because you, you, that's where you have the emergence of like the jerry curl and the s curl um and all of those texturizing treatments for men and women um so yeah throughout the 80s and 90s and into the noughties um straight hair remained the default it was only with the kind of birth of what is called the natural hair movement that you start to see people rejecting those relaxers and texture well the texturizers were already gone rejecting relaxer and going back to not straightening their hair but the difference between that and the earlier incarnation that's associated with black power is a lot of people um, are quite adamant that them not straightening their hair that it isn't political it's um just something that that it that their primary motivation isn't political yeah But it sounds to me like hair is political in this context. And are there ways in which people today can reclaim their hair and use it as a political symbol? And should they? Um, Yeah, I I don't want to say, I don't want to kind of argue that anyone should do anything. And um, I don't want to like police anybody's, I, I mean, I just like black people are just like, Black people's bodies are so kind of heavily policed anyway. I don't want to kind of do that any further and be like, you should wear your hair this way or you shouldn't wear your hair that way. Um, everybody has their own reasons and motivations for how for how they wear their hair. And there is, um, I guess there is, there is so much kind of creativity and innovation in black hairstyling culture that there are so many different types of hairstyles that you can, that you can choose from. But for me personally, um, me, me making the decision to stop relaxing my hair was 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 political and um, I knew that the reasons that I was relaxing my hair were because of like shame associated like with my hair texture so I had to kind of undo all of that and accept and embrace my actual the actual texture that my that my hair is um and through the, the, by stopping relaxing and I had to like seek out other ways of like grooming it and maintaining it and for me I, I do uh style my hair in a lot of kind of like traditional um like braided hairstyles my hair will usually be braided in some way if if it's not out in an afro 
Um, so for me, it was political. Yeah. You talk in the book about cultural appropriation, which is a, it's one of those things that's had a big moment recently mm-hmm. in the media a lot. Um, how do those concepts fit into this idea, do you think? Yeah. Um, so cultural appropriation um, is really relevant to hair because one of the, um, I guess, flashpoints where we've seen kind of um, accusations of cultural appropriation has been around um, white people, often white celebrities, styling their hair um, in styles that are traditional black hairstyles. Um, and the issue, I guess, I mean, if if the if if the world was different and there was a level playing field between black and white, there wouldn't be any issue. Um, anybody should be able to style their hair any way they want to. But when you look at the context of reality, um, there's not a level playing field. The same hairstyles that a white celebrity will be celebrated for and will be lauded for um, kind of by high, fa- by high fashion, by the media, are the same hairstyles um, that black children will be excluded from schools for or black employees will be told are inappropriate for work. Um, and that was happening, like the, the kind of discrimination that existed um, has been, the level of discrimination has been recognised um, by uh, the city of New York, which has recently just brought in legislation, making it illegal to um, discriminate against black people on the grounds of their hair because it was happening with such with, with, with such frequency. So it's the disparity between the way the white person who chooses these hairstyles is treated versus the black person who actually needs to use those type of hairstyles because that's how we maintain our hair. Um, and also when you think again about the context, um, I think a lot of the relationship between Africa and Europe and the descendants of Africans um, in, in, in the last 500 years has been a process of extraction of resources for the benefit of um, of Western economies, um, financial, cultural economies, and it's the extraction of like all of physical resources, of material resources, of cultural resources, and that kind of um, facsimile of blackness um, that celebrities will create or will appropriate, um, which makes them kind of edgy and hugely successful performers, but which um, black people are demonized for is part of that process of is part of that process of extraction. So I know people want to often dismiss cultural appropriation as something like really frivolous and and silly and shallow. And if you look at it beyond any context, you're like, oh, it's just about hair and hair is like really superficial. Um, that's how people kind of that that's how people can construct that argument. But that that argument, belies an ignorance of the of the larger picture so yeah um you write uh, in the book that everything you've been taught about africa is a lie and it's a story designed to justify the continent's exploitation mm-hmm. which is what you're saying here isn't it is that we are unknowingly or knowingly part of this wider story mm-hmm. how would you like this book to change people's impression of hair and its importance and its significance yeah, so more so than just changing people's signif- changing people's attitudes towards the significance of hair, I want them to 
reassess how they think about things like cultural appropriation, how they think about um, pre-colonial African societies, how they think about African society and culture. Um, and the uh, quote that you just referenced is from the final chapter, which is called Ancient Futures, Maths, Mapping and Encoding. And in that, I look at the relationship between braided hairstyles and fractal mathematics, fractal design. Um, and I talk about um, different calculating systems that are indigenous African technologies and um, this kind of lively mathematical history that exists in the continent. Um, and it's not something we ever really hear about because it doesn't fit the narrative of African primitivism. We always hear these kind of stereotypes about black people um, excelling, you know, kind of in, in, in terms of the physical, so um, in, ath in athletics, in sports, but we don't really hear, we, we don't really hear about um, any of those more I guess, what are seen as like um, intellectual or cerebral traditions. So it was really important for me to, um, yeah, kind of, I want there to be stereotypes about black people and maths. I can't imagine that happening anytime, anytime soon. But uncovering that history was, um, was really fascinating for me. So if the book can bring some of those ideas that are not widely perpetuated or widely known to broader audiences, that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. That was Emma Dabbery. Emma's book, Don't Touch My Hair, is out now published by Alan Lane. You can read Matt's interview with Emma in issue 17 of BBC World Histories magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when I'll be speaking to the author Harry Potter about the history of British prisons. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.